The case is uh, Hale versus McLeod. A council of present. And uh, gentlemen, since we are in a law school environment, we'd ask uh, if you would stay around a few minutes once all arguments are over to be available for questions from the students. There's also a reception planned in the common area down to the right, and you're certainly invited and welcome to come and meet the students, and we will be there as well. So are there any preliminary matters to come before the court before we get started? Okay, then we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, may it please the court. My name is Matt Rogers. I'm with my co-counsel, James Kilborn. We have the honor and pleasure of representing Mike Hale, who is sitting uh, on the first row behind us. Appellant would like to reserve four minutes uh, for rebuttal time. Okay. This appeal presents a simple issue. That's whether the first amended complaint provides sufficient details to allow Mr. Hale to pursue discovery and allow Defendant Page to defend himself against the nine claims alleged in the claims for relief. The complaint details at least nine specific false and misleading uh, representations taking place over five months starting in March of 2020, uh, ending in approximately July or on July 5th, 2020, which induced Mr. Hale to sign a document uh, loaning uh, a company $250,000. That company at the time likely was an insolvent and failing company, but was not represented as such by the defendants in this case. So the case is before us today on a 12B6 motion, is that correct? That's correct, Your Honor. So the trial court dismissed the claims for failure to state a, uh, for state, failure to state a claim? That's correct, Your Honor. How do we review that judge's ruling? That is a de novo review, uh, just like the trial court judge, the pleadings, uh, the allegations of the complaint are deemed true. Uh, for the purposes of evaluating the, evaluating the claims. In this case, the claims uh, established that two experienced professionals, uh, Mr. Page, who was dismissed, and if I may clarify, only the claims against Mr. Page were dismissed. Claims against uh, <coughs> Dr. McLeod, the second defendant, and the company Green Farms Co. Uh, were not dismissed. They were later dismissed voluntarily, uh, thereby making the 12B6 against Mr. Page a final order that allowed uh, review by this court. So your, your client was a creditor to a corporation. That's correct. Gave funds. Uh, as an investment in exchange for a promise to repay the money he lent. Well, your, Honor, your Honor mentions the term investment. That's part of the fraudulent inducement in this case, was that my client was told that it was a loan that would be uh, would treat him as a secured creditor, very different than an investor or an equity investor that would have to stand in line behind the uh, secured creditors and other creditors of the company that would be paid first in the event of uh, some kind of uh, insolvency like we have in this case. Now, the debt instrument that, it, that uh, he, your client has was a convertible prom promissory note? That's correct, Your Honor. Was that convertible for stock in the company? It, it would have been convertible uh, under the circumstances that allowed for conversion, yes. In this case, Your Honor, the, I think it's important to note that the two individuals that uh, communicated with Mr. Hale were a Mr. Page, who is the one that the claims were dismissed against, who represented himself that he was an attorney who uh, left a law practice in order to, to become the CEO and lead the company, in this case, Green Farms Co., that was a, a privately held company that was in a newly emerging industry uh, without uh, much public information in order to determine uh, many of the representations that were made by Mr. Page. The fact that Mr. Hale may, or Mr. Page may have been an attorney, does that impose any higher burden on him in the role in which he was acting? Legally, I, I'm not certain that there is a, a, an enhanced uh, uh, burden. However, from a professional standpoint, I would say yes. And in this case, it's particularly egregious when you look at the nature of the claims, uh, assuming that they are true for the purposes of getting to the next phase. Um, and, and that's one of the, the real problems that we have in this case is that we're not able to dig into some of the allegations and really determine uh, the, with full scope and discovery as to the, the, the nature of some of the claims. Um, what this complaint does in this instance, though, is it does identify a number of the specific confidential information that was provided to Mr. Hale that induced him uh, to make these loans. Uh, that confidential information was attached to the complaint and is part of the record on appeal. 
it came in the form of a very extensive uh, declaration, uh, very extensive uh, representations regarding the, the, the condition of the company, the financial condition of the company, and, and I would the, the, the competitive analysis of the company. Uh, the, the, the first example that is attached to the complaint is Exhibit 1, which is a, what's referred to as a capitalization table. That capitalization table identifies that prior to the loaning of any of the money, the company was at that point valued at $160 million, and that after the loan, provided that the, the, this series of, of loans was uh, fully uh, uh, obtained, that the company would be worth $200 million. That's a far cry from what actually happened in this case when approximately 10 months later Mr. Hale was learned uh, that the company was insolvent and liquidation proceedings had started. Um, now, your, your client, in the record reflects your client is referred to as an accredited investor? Y yes, Your Honor. And, and what, what exactly does that mean? Well, well it's an interesting question um, at this point because it, he's referred to uh, or he signed a document that was prepared by uh, the defendant in this case that characterized him as an accredited investor. Whether he is an actual accredited investor or not is something that would be subject to discovery and should be to determine whether uh, he in fact uh, was a, an accredited investor. Is that someone who typically uh, takes higher risk type investments? Based on my understanding of what an accredited investor would be in this, this situation, it's someone that would be more sophisticated, um, that uh, may have the ability to withstand uh, losses um, and, and therefore m maybe not take higher risks but only be more capable of evaluating the risks. That's one of the, 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 the situations here uh, that's concerning is because we had two very sophisticated defendants that were able to convince a sophisticated or at least from a, a alleged standpoint uh, uh, convince a sophisticated individual to loan this money. That happened over a, a period of time where very specific representations were made that made it appear that this company was incredibly uh, financially sound, that it had an incredible future. It had, based on the representations in this case, more than $160 million of sales in the pipeline. Was there a disclosure that uh, the entire part of your client's capital would be at risk? Your Honor, this, again, wasn't capital. This was a loan. That's one well, of the reasons why this is very unique is assuming you were just a standard accredited investor, for example, um, then you would expect that you would have the possibility of losing your investment. But that's why this is very unique and it, it, it uh, piques the interest um, to find out why was it that these two individuals, Mr. McLeod and, or Dr. McLeod and Mr. Page, they both re, uh, required or they both promised personal guarantees. Um, if I can point, uh, Your Honor, to uh, the two letters that were identified as uh, exhibits in the original complaint and in the First Amendment complaint that were personal letters written uh, by Dr. McLeod um, and uh, Mr. Page, uh, both of which indicated that uh, they were both uh, had contributed significant amounts of their own personal wealth to make this business work, and that if, if I can quote, uh, Dr. McLeod, as you review these materials, I'm confident you'll understand why I believe this is a strong and secure investment and why I chose to put my own or put my personal financial balance sheet on the line. Uh, Mr. Page, in another personal letter, said very similar statements, um, including at the top of his uh, at the top of his letter, he represented that the company had over a hundred million dollars of deals in the pipeline today, the date of the writing that letter. He further indicated that, uh, in the third paragraph of that letter that that's why I've chosen to personally guarantee this note series pledging my personal balance sheet because I see the CBD green rush right around the corner and I know when the next round of financing green farms will be in the right position at the right time to seize it. Those representations and personal guarantees are part of what made this very unique and different from just an ordinary in, uh, investor and equity situation. But the personal guarantee wasn't for the entire 250000 correct? So each one of the individuals, and, and this is one of the nuances that you, in order to get into the, the, the nitty-gritty, you need to understand. The personal guarantees uh, that, that were actually signed indicated that it would be a proportion relative to the ownership interests of each uh, Mr. Page and Dr. McLeod at that time. 
if you look at the details of that, Dr. McLeod actually didn't directly own any ownership interest in the company. He owned, uh, it appears, uh, indirectly through a, a, a Canyon Trust entity. He owned 81% of the business, and then Mr. Page owned another 9%. So under those circumstances, there would be uh, a 90% guarantee based on the language of the, the, the guarantees that were actually signed. I think uh, from a legal standpoint, this would be something that will be fleshed out as the, the case proceeded um, as to whether those limitations in those documents should actually apply. Under North Carolina law, we have a, a principle that's when documents uh, are drafted by a party, any ambiguities in those documents are interpreted against the drafter of the, the document. In this case, you've got language uh, in the same document, the, the, the personal letters that were provided at the same time as the personal guarantees that were provided that appear contradictory. The language that I just read from these personal letters, it doesn't have any type of limitation whatsoever. It identifies that they put their full personal guarantee and their personal balance sheet fully at risk. So that begs a, a question as to whether there really should be. But I think that would be something that a trial judge would be able to evaluate if we were able to get to the next stage, have discovery, and determine what actually uh, was said, what was meant by these documents. Again, the, the, the problem we have at this point is we don't know the true nature of the facts because we haven't had any discovery, and we just have the pleadings that were only intended uh, to put the defendant on notice of the claims that, that would allow the defendant to, uh, to, to defend the claims against themselves. So I'm, I would presume that you may very similar arguments before the trial judge on the motion to dismiss and the hearing and uh, how do you get it wrong? Your Honor, I believe that the brief establishes all the basis that the reason he got it wrong. The challenge in a 12B6 like this is that the trial judge doesn't have to identify the reasons for his, his uh, opinion. Um, from our standpoint, the, the complaint is an incredibly detailed complaint that identifies not only specific dates of specific Zoom conferences, uh, specific representations that were made, uh, but it also identifies and sets forth the documents that, that were provided to Mr. Hale that, that corroborate some of the representations that were made to him. I mean, from, from our perspective, it's, it, we find it very hard to believe that, uh, that anyone wouldn't want to take this investment based on the, the representations of the financial status of the company um, and uh, that it's, it's prospects, it's business, uh, along with a guarantee from an accomplished uh, orthopedic surgeon or represented himself as accomplished, and an attorney who gave up a, a, a successful law practice to come work for this business. You know, basically a 12B6 tests the sufficiency of the complaint. That's correct. And it's judged in the light most favorable to the, to the, the non-moving party, which would be the plaintiff, giving them the benefit of every inference. That's, That's the standard, correct? That's correct. Um, what is the duty on the trial judge where you start attaching multiple exhibits to the complaint and you're facing a 12B6 motion? I know if there's an answer, it would convert it to a Rule 12C, and if there are affidavits, it would convert it to a Rule 56 summary judgment. So all these exhibits that you attach to the complaint on a 12B6, what does the trial judge do with that? The, the trial, and what impact does it have? The trial judge is required to consider the content of those documents um, and, and as part of the pleadings. And that's why these kinds of cases are particularly difficult without those kinds of documents and why this case is a perfect example of the kind of case that should move past a 12B6. Because we have those detailed documents and we're able to look at all the details of those documents in the context of the oral representations that were made by Mr. Hale, we can confirm that a number of those statements were that Mr. Hale otherwise would have to rely on uh, his memory uh, to, 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 to recite in a, a complaint. He doesn't have to in this case because some of the information is available to us. And I think that's one of the reasons why this particular case is, again, uh, quite astonishing that uh, it was dismissed. I mean, we have letters, personal letters that were written identifying the, the status of the company. In particular, again, that more than $100 million of sales was in the pipeline. 
if more than $100 million of sales was on the pipeline that day that the letter was written, then the company would not be insolvent by May of 2021, less than a year later. If the company was valued at $100 million or $160 million, as was written in the capitalization table that was attached to the complaint, then the company would not be insolvent uh, and subject to uh, liquidation proceedings uh, in a foreign jurisdiction. Now, that was in Michigan, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. And uh, there was a pleading for you to file a proof of claim for your client's loss in, in the bankruptcy or, or in the proceeding in Michigan. Did you do that? So, Your Honor, this is a part of the interesting parts of this. A, a proof of claim was filed, but it was only filed after this complaint in North Carolina was filed. And so this served. was pending? It, it was, and it was served before... Uh, the, the proof of claim deadline. The other very interesting portion, and, and, and Your Honor knows um, from reading the complaint in this case, that's one of the remedies that Mr. Hale sought in this complaint was that according to the, the venue provisions in the promissory note, it required that all uh, disputes relating to the guarantees which would and the transactions relative to the guarantees would be resolved in, uh, in Buncombe County, uh, North Carolina. There's no, uh, Mr. Hale didn't have any uh, personal jurisdiction or any ties to Michigan, and in fact, the proof of claim wasn't even sent to Michigan. The proof of claim was required to be sent to an agent or some entity in California. So the proof of claim that was submitted was in fact a copy of the original complaint in this matter that was sent with an objection uh, to uh, the proceedings in Michigan indicating that, uh, that, that all claims relating to Mr. Hale should in fact be uh, resolved in uh, Buncombe County, North Carolina. And, and that, that proceeding only related to the entity and not the individual, th is that, that correct? That's correct, Your Honor. To the so, best of our knowledge, you know, the, the, the challenge in those situations is Mr. Hale doesn't have any ties and subject, subjecting himself to that jurisdiction would require him to go up and argue these. We don't know what happened in the uh, Michigan proceeding. However, uh, there is case law that establishes that uh, that would not relieve the personal guarantors like uh, Mr. Page of their obligation, even if uh, there was some kind of winding up or liquidation in Michigan. Well, I'm sure we're here from opposing counsel how the judge got it right. And so, again, I go back to the question, how did he get it wrong? I, I, we've read your briefs, and if you would just go walk us through why you should go, at least they should be compelled to answer. You should be about be allowed discovery, or maybe this even needs to go to a Rule 56. S certainly, Your Honor. The, 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 the first um, that I would tell you is the claims for relief. Um, the, the first claim for relief, uh, fraudulent inducement. Um, we established that there are 24 different paragraphs and exhibits that clearly specify the, the fraudulent misrepresentations that were made to Mr. Hale. And you acknowledge that an allegation of fraud must be specifically pled. That's correct. There's a higher pleading requirement. Absolutely. And, and we've done that in this case, um, identifying who made the representations. We walk you from the first time that Mr. Hale uh, met Dr. McLeod to the circumstances that led to Dr. McLeod introducing Mr. Hale to uh, Mr. Page as the CEO, the, the scope and the content of each one of the Zoom meetings that they had, the representations that were made to Mr. Hale, which include some that I've indicated here. Uh, for example, that the company was financially sound, that $100 million in pipeline business, it was valued at $160 million. There are also some very important representations that were made to Mr. Hale uh, regarding uh, the, the process that would occur in the event of, uh, of a liquidation. Um, those those uh, processes were not followed. In this case, the representations that were made to Mr. Hale is that an individual by the name of Mr. Van Kirk, Mark Van Kirk, would be the administrative agent. Upon the signing of the documents as represented to Mr. Hale, Mr. Van Kirk would then uh, ensure that the uh, Mr. Hale's security interests were perfected, um, which would put Mr. Hale. Uh, uh, it wouldn't. Mr. Hale would remain a secured creditor regardless whether they are perfected, but it would, as a result of the perfection, would make him a higher priority secured creditor. That, in fact, didn't happen. Um, other uh, representations that were made were that Dr. Uh, Dr. McLeod and that uh, Mr. Page would, in fact, uh, remain in control of the company. That's again not what happened. Um, other representations were that, uh, they, that the guarantees would only uh, apply or not apply in the event uh, that the Dr. Uh, McLeod and Mr. Page were terminated. 
based on the allegations of this complaint, they weren't terminated. Can, they, can you address, I, I think some of the argument on the other side is that um, your clients signed documents that explained, for example, an investment in this company involves significant risk and the convertible promissory notes are speculative securities. It also said that, that Mr. Page was, I guess it was Mr. McLeod, was only authorized to speak on behalf of the company. I, I, can you sort of address the things that the other side is saying that you all knew and, and signed such that it defeats some of your claims? Certainly. I'd like to approach, uh, address first that, that Dr. Uh, Pay, or Mr. Page was not authorized on behalf of the company. That argument. Um, first of all, I believe that that argument supports Mr. Hale's claims for fraud. Um, the, 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 since 1974, North Carolina's courts have held a rule that fraud has no specific definition lest crafty men find ways to avoid the, the technical definition. Now, ruling that a chief executive officer who was authorized by the chairman of the board is not authorized to make any representations on the company would just, it, is, it flies in the face of building confidence in business and, is, uh, and is, um, would essentially invalidate just about any representation made by uh, senior executives um, and it would contradict North Carolina agency law. Well, it and, seems, it seems, I'm just going to interrupt you, that there was, was, was this representation signed that only the manager, Mr. McLeod, could make such representations about the company? Did your client sign that? Or? Well, so the documents were signed by Mr. Hale. There's no uh, dispute okay. as to that. The, the question, I, I think, more goes to where was that uh, representation made and uh, does it contradict the verbal representations and other representations that were made in the documents? The first thing that we know is that it does contradict the verbal representations. And that's one of the reasons why the first claim in this case is fraud and the inducement because the verbal representations that were made to Mr. Hale was, in fact, Mr. Page could be the one that makes these representations to you and you can trust his representations. In the briefing, we've also identified numerous locations in this, those same documents that identify that, uh, that other individuals uh, are able to make representations and are authorized to make representations. And I believe in three different locations in the documents that were also provided to Ms. Trail and signed, it references that, uh, that uh, Mr. Hale had an opportunity to ask questions and have those questions uh, answered to his satisfaction. And that's exactly the process that Dr. McLeod told Mr. Hale should do with Mr. Page. So again, it would contradict the representations that were made to him. I think it's also important to point out, for example, in the convertible note, if you look at note section 4, Romanet 2, the language of that gives the, another example of the same kind of uh, representation that Mr. Page was authorized. The language is, quote, the company's manager or other authorized representative has approved issuance of this note and after reasonable inquiry concerning the company's financing objective and financial situation. That specifically uh, goes to the same issues that we're talking about, that the note uh, uh, affirms that Mr. Page as CEO was authorized to, uh, to, to, to issue the note and that he did so after he determined the financial situation of the company and that he had misrepresented the financial situation of the company at that time. Now, Let me ask you one thing um, more specifically about the unfair and deceptive trade practice claim. Um, it was dismissed as well. Yes, as to Mr. Page. That's right. right, and um, we've got fairly extensive precedent in North Carolina that Chapter 75 claims do not apply to quote-unquote security transactions and that a promissory note that's convertible in the stock is a security. You want, are you saying the trial judge got that one right or why, why would that not be a bar to that specific claim? Your, Your Honor, in this situation I believe that this is probably the closest claim that, uh, to, to being dismissed properly. And the reason in this case it, the, the case of Noble versus Foxmore, which I believe was the February of 2022 case from the North Carolina Supreme Court, it postdated the filing of these these complaint of this complaint. So the, Noble versus Foxmore, I believe, makes it fairly clear that convertible promissory notes that relate to the capitalization or the financing of a business are not in an effect in commerce. So I believe that that uh, is is likely uh, correct. That's one of the reasons why, in brief, we didn't uh, pursue. Uh, that issue. However, but, but that's what I'm trying to clarify. I'm trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. So, yes. 
That was a claim I want to ask you directly about that because of that controlling precedent. Now, and if there was any claim that no, this this transaction would not be subject to that precedent. This, if any, uh, case demonstrates uh, that if North Carolina law is incorrect or should be modified, this would be the kind of circumstance that it should be modified. And the reason being is that uh, Mr. Hale was induced to sign this uh, promissory note um, as a lender, not understanding the nuances of North Carolina law. He was told he would be treated as a secured creditor, not as an equity investor or a securities holder. Um, in this situation, uh, for the sake of efficiency, um, and because there are other claims like the fraud and the securities fraud statutes, we believe that Mr. Hale has a similar remedy, and we intend to pursue those similar remedies. As it relates to the constructive fraud claim, does that not require, and this goes back to an earlier question, does that not require a relation of trust and confidence existing between the parties? It does, and in this situation we have those circumstances, and that's the Keener Lumber versus Perry uh, circumstance, where uh, when a company uh, approaches insolvency, and I, the, the stand, uh, then uh, duties arise to the creditors of the company uh, to preserve the assets and, and to perform in a certain manner. And our argument uh, in that regard uh, 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 follows the facts of this case, and that is once the convertible promissory note was signed, it contained obligations that required the uh, defendants to provide Mr. Hale with financial information on a quarterly basis that they never provided. And you agree I, the general rule is officers of the company do not have a fiduciary relationship shareholders. You that, do as, as a general correct. rule. Yes, as a general rule, except under specific circumstances like we have in this case. Okay. And, and as we've alleged. You have about five minutes left if you want to. Uh, I'll reserve that time uh, for, I'd like to finish the question. Yes. Or any, if you have any uh, uh, other uh, question with re that regard. And the, the only thing that I'd point out, and I think it's important, is that following the signing of this complaint, Mr. Hale's allegations of fraud and uh, constructive fraud and fiduciary duty, he has independent claims that re relate to that because the duty arose to provide him with information. The first that he learned about this case or that the company was insolvent was uh, f from the Michigan uh, liquidation. They weren't providing him with that information. They hadn't provided him with the information that his uh, security interests weren't perfected. Would that go more to the breach of contract claim? Not, not in this situation. It, it, it could, but in this situation, it prevented him from actually uh, exercising his remedies. One of the representations made in, in May of 2021 was you'll be treated as a secured creditor, when in fact he was not treated as a secured creditor uh, in the Michigan liquidation. That's one of the reasons why it's not. It was an affirmative misrepresentation as to how he would be treated. So that could go either to the breach of contract or to the fraud. That's correct. And those, again, I think would be uh, whether and how they're decided will be determined uh, uh, after we have discovery and we learn more information about what actually transpired. Okay. You have four minutes left. Thank you, Your Honor. May Good, please afternoon. The court. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Douglas Hanna. I represent the uh, defendant, Appley, uh, Mr. Jonathan Page. Now, first thing I think it's important to understand is that this case is really a case about contract documents. It's not a fraud case. Um, and we say that because when you look at the timeline and you look at the complaint, um, the there were investment materials provided to Mr. Hale on July 2nd, 2020. So if you orient, orient yourself to that, to that date, um, the investment materials, as I've outlined in paragraph 40 of the complaint, were provided by a, a group called ARC Advisors, which was the broker. The, uh, Mr., Mr. Hale met Mr. McLeod in March, so just a few months earlier. Um, so you said there was no prior relationship between Mr. Hale and Dr. McLeod or Mr. Page? No, I'm saying that just from a timeline perspective, Mr. Hale meets Dr. McLeod in March. And when you look at... I guess at my question is more, was there any pre-existing relationship between these parties but for the approach of the broker? The, yes, there was. Mr. Hale um, and his wife were acquaintances with, Mr., with Dr. McLeod's sister, 
um, Dr. McLeod's sister told them about uh, Dr. McLeod. He owned a um, uh, some facility in a climbing facility, I believe, in Asheville. Mr. Hale met Mr. McLeod or Dr. McLeod on March 8th. Um, it was actually Mr. Hale who solicited Dr. McLeod about investment opportunities as set forth in the complaint. Um, in paragraph 16, at, at the end of their initial encounter, Hale casually referenced that Hale might be interested to help finance local business opportunities. And then a few days later, Mr. Hale emailed, uh, actually that same day, Mr. Hale emailed Dr. McLeod stating that Hale was looking for local investment opportunities and would love to consider participating in the initial round of funding for the hemp and C CBD business. And there were so your client's an orthopedic surgeon? My client is, no, the orthopedic surgeon is Dr. McLeod. Right. Dr. McLeod is not my client. My client is Mr. Page, the CEO of the company. Okay. Dr. McLeod is the member manager, the sole manager of this single uh, manager LLC. Green Farms Company. Yes, sir. Yes, Your Honor. And and Dr. McLeod, Dr. McLeod, the complaint indicates, was not only the the uh, majority owner, the primary investor, but he was also the the manager. So, so the issues before us today relate solely to Mr. Hale and Mr. Page. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. In fact, um, the, the the trial court dismissed um, Mr. Page from the lawsuit at 12b6 withheld his ruling on Dr. McLeod. Um, they, the, Mr. Mr. Hale, the plaintiff, subsequently filed a voluntary dismissal against Dr. McLeod and the company, and they have subsequently, on September 7th, refiled against um, Mr. or Dr. McLeod. So the issues today are just between Mr. Hale as plaintiff and Mr. Page as defendant? Yes, Your Honor. And, and so to, to go back to the timeline, uh, Mr. Hale and Dr. McLeod meet in March. There's some discussion about, would you like to invest in the company? Initially, there was some discussions about an equity investment. At some point in time, according to the complaint, um, Mr. Hale had discussions with Mr. Van Kirk, the administrative agent, who started talking about um, maybe it would be better to invest doing a convertible promissory note. And that, according to Van Kirk, um, he told Hale, and this is paragraph 32, that he was involved in structuring and documenting a convertible note which payment was secured by the assets of GF Company and personally guaranteed by McLeod and uh, Page. And so the, the parties then decided move moved in that direction. And what's important is on July 2nd, ARC Advisors, the broker, sends this offering memorandum. So sends an offer to Mr. Page and indicates this is what we are selling. And, it, and as indicated in the prior questioning, the offering memorandum and the record at page uh, 422 states no person other than the manager of the company, which is Dr. McLeod, has been authorized to make representations or give any information with respect to the company except the information and representations contained in this memorandum. So there's a memorandum and offer here are the reps that we're making to you, the company. This, the company is making is authorized to do this by the manager, Dr. McLeod, who's in control. And Mr. Hale agrees. And Mr. Hale not only agrees to that, meaning here are the reps and it's McLeod who's authorized, but he also himself, when he signs the convertible promissory note, makes some representations. He represents reps that he's sophisticated. Um, he reps that, and this is the record at page 37, that Mr. Hale has such knowledge and experience in financial and business matters that the holder is capable of evaluating the merits and risks of this investment. He represents that he has the ability to bear the economic risk. Would you agree, though, that all that being true, taking that as true, that um, even someone who's sophisticated has a right to accurate information? Yes. He has a right to the, the reps that were made by the company. He has a right to that that would be accurate. But as to fraud, it has to be, as stated by the Supreme Court recently uh, in, a, in an opinion that was just entered on September 1st, there must, uh, the Supreme Court indicated, quoting Ragsdale, 
um, versus Kennedy, there must be evidence of a misrepresentation of existing or ascertainable facts as distinguished from a matter of opinion or representation relating to future prospects. And what you heard um, in the opening argument was talking about prospects. The, the company talked about prospects uh, involving, um, involving the pipeline, um, which is not something that's subject to a, a fraud claim. Um, there are actually nine representations that the, Mr. Hale indicates is that he's proceeding on against my client, Mr. Page. Those nine representations were pulled from the briefing. Um, we went through and created a chart for, your, for uh, the court to explain why none of the nine are, um, you know, even if you assume that Mr. Page somehow had the authority to make reps, and even if you assume that the reps were outside of what was contained in the offering memorandum, um, the representations that they're complaining about in this case are not actionable in fraud. Uh, and I'll also point the court to that recent Supreme Court case where they talked about um, unfulfilled promises cannot be made the basis for an action of fraud. And so the, when you look at some of the cases that were cited, there's actually a pre-existing uh, fact that was either uh, misrepresented or, or concealed from the person that constitutes fraud. In this case, when you start looking at the nine representations that they're complaining about, um, it has to do with future projections. So you, know, you cite Ragsdale and Kennedy in the brief, the, the more recent case that you just cited. What, what is it again? And we submitted a um, memorandum, memorandum of additional authority right. two days ago, and that uh, case that we're citing is um, it's Value Health Solutions. Number, versus Pharmacy Research Associates. Yes, number uh, 100A22, Supreme Court opinion filed on September 1st, 2023. And, and, and your, your reliance on that case is just basically unfulfilled promises cannot be the basis of fraud. Correct, and, and likewise, uh, future representations relating to future prospects are not actionable as fraud. And when you, when you look at the, before I get to the nine uh, representations, I, I do think it's important to walk through the offer that was made to Mr. Hale that he accepted, um, to talk about in the record what he agreed to when he made his, when he signed the convertible promissory note and he invested $250,000 via that convertible promissory note. Again, that note is between the company and Mr. Hale. My, my client's not a party to that contract. But your client did give a personal guarantee. He did. He signed a personal guarantee um, that indicated that he would be responsible. Uh, there was a cap of right 5% five, uh, 5 of his, I'm sorry, um, the personal guarantee that he signed indicates that uh, there's a cap based on the percentage of ownership of Mr. Page. Mr. Page, as the documents indicate, had a 5% ownership in the company. So on the $250,000 investment, my client would have guaranteed 12500 but that guarantee was also subject to release language in paragraph 7, which is at page 56 of the record. And the release language indicates that notwithstanding anything to the contrary in the note or this guarantee, the, guarantee, the guarantor, Mr. Page, will be relieved of his obligations under this guarantee um, if the company has terminated the guarantor's employment with the company. And again, going back to the question about documents attached to the complaint, um, that's the, you know, I think the key case is the Schlepper case, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And that case talks about um, when the court indicated when considering documents attached to the complaint, the actual content of the documents controls, not the allegations in the pleadings. And so the allegation here was Mr. Page resigned, even though the, ter the guarantee says he has to be terminated. But when you look at the actual filing in the Mich Michigan liquidation proceeding, which is, um, that is at page 
98 of the record. That's a, a document that was signed by the person who has control, Dr. McLeod, the manager. He signs the general assignment for the benefit of creditors initiating this Michigan liquidation proceeding. And when he's uh, filed this in May of 2021, um, the document at, at, at uh, record page 105 indicates a signor has terminated or prior to its execution of this agreement will terminate any and all of its employees, including the chief executive officer, which is my client. So he's relieved uh, pursuant to the release of that guarantee. So that is the contract between Mr. Page and Mr. Hale, not the convertible promissory note. So you're saying that his the maximum liability he would have had in any event would have been twelve five of the two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that that only lasted so long as he was continued to be employed by the company. Yes, Your Honor. And that's the that's the the, the basis of the breach contract. But that would only be termination, not resignation, correct? Correct. And the documents that are attached, um, the Michigan liquidation proceeding documents indicate he was terminated. And then, of course, there's a final judgment that's also in the record from the Michigan liquidation proceeding. So if we if we go if we kind of reorient ourselves back to the the offer that was made, um, not only did they not only did the company when they made this offer to Mr. Hale indicate no person other than the manager is authorized, but uh, noted that the convertible promissory notes are available only to pers persons willing enable to bear the economic risks of this investment for an indefinite period of time. And to go back just really quick to finish my last question, Mr. Page signed a guarantee, but he also signed the convertible promissory note on behalf of the company, right, at the he same did. time? Yes. So all of this is happening simultaneously? Yes. Yes. They believe they were signed the same day. And so the, the offer obviously in, had some um, – I'm, I'm, this is on page 430 of the record. The offering memorandum had a section called cautionary note regarding forward-looking statements. Um, statements contained, so the company is telling Mr. Hale, statements contained in this memorandum, including information incorporated by reference and statements concerning the investment objective and business and other plans and objectives of the company for future operations and economic performance discuss future ex expectations, and state other forward-looking information. Those statements are subject to known and unknown risks, uncertainties, and other factors, many of which are beyond the company's control, which could cause the actual results to differ materially. Um, the company goes on to, to report to Mr. Hale in this offer, in light of the risks, assumptions, and uncertainties involved, no person, including the company, can assure Mr. Hale that the forward-looking information um, contained in this memorandum will in fact transpire or prove to be accurate, which is why, I mean, not only did he agree to this and understand that this there was forward-looking information, but the Supreme Court citing other cases, Ragsdale's indicated these type of forward-looking statements are not properly subject uh, to a fraud claim. In fact, the company goes on on page 430 and says, well, the company makes no rep representations and undertakes no obligation to update the forward-looking information, even though Mr. Hale's complaining, after I signed this note, I never got more information from the company. And the company is saying, we are under no obligation to update this and provide you more information. Um, the, the investor suitability uh, section and, and Page 432 says an investment in this company and the underlying securities involves a high degree of risk and is suitable only for experienced investors. Um, the company also reports to Mr. Hale that they will conduct the offering with the assistance of ARC Advisory Company, uh, who will receive a 5% success fee. And ARC is the company that provided the offering memorandum to Mr. Hale. Uh, risks. They're not a party to the litigation. They are not. The risks are outlined beginning on page 433 of the record. Um, specifically, it says an investment in this in the company involves significant risks and is suitable only for those persons who can bear the economic risk of loss in their entire investment for an indefinite period of time 
and who have limited need for liquidity of their investment. See risk factors and the but other. Again, I go back to my earlier question. Let's say all that is true, and for you know, unfulfilled promises cannot be fraud. Future prospects cannot be fraud. But the information that someone is provided must be accurate. Correct. The, the representations that are contained in the offer by the company, yes. Um, and so if there is a, um, those, but those representations also come with, hey, there are a lot of things in here, forward-looking statements, and this is high risk. And, and I know you're not representing the company, so the questions that I would have probably are not appropriate to you for Mr. Um, Mr. Page. That's correct, Your Honor. And, and, but my point is even if you look at the nine reps, and even if I did represent the company, I would say, you know, the claim that an investment uh, for 10% equity would generate certain projected returns is not subject to a fraud claim. That's number one. The second, the claim that McLeod and Page controlled, managed, and that they would remain employed by, by the company. That my client never managed or controlled anything. In fact, the, the complaint states that McLeod was the manager, and McLeod was the majority shareholder. But as the CEO, your client didn't have any control over the daily activities of the company. My client did not control the company on the decisions of selling, you know, offering the note, and filing Michigan liquidation proceedings. That's true. My client was the CEO, um, but obviously the, the guarantee, it's, I mean, it's important to understand that the guarantee that, he, that Mr. Hale signed obviously contemplated, hey, I, as CEO, I might get fired. I might get terminated. The, the disclosures uh, that were provided to the company by, I'm sorry, provided to Mr. Hale by the company also indicate management might be subject to change. So there's no guarantee that Mr. Page is going to stay on or remain on as the CEO, and that's cited in our brief. And there's some, there are three cases involving, you know, courts looking, uh, trial courts looking at disclosures that were provided to someone in connection with a fraud claim. Um, the, the Schlipper case that I noted earlier, ACE is the case with the airplane, the selling the, the uh, airplane where um, the broker had conversations with a North Carolina lawyer saying, the, if I can make sure I get that correct. Um, the broker told the, the lawyer that the uh, airplane had been excellently maintained. The airplane was subject to periodic airworthiness inspections. Um, there was an agreement reached by telephone. The North Carolina lawyer flew down to Texas, wanted to look at the, wanted to test, test fly the airplane. Uh, it got late in the day, and they, the broker presented the buyer with a purchase agreement, and the purchase agreement said, you're buying this airplane as is, where is. No reps are being made by the, by the owner of the airplane. Um, the, the, the court in that case affirmed the, the uh, JNOV ruling by the trial court and indicated the court noted that the buyer read and signed the purchase agreement where he agreed that no representations were being made. The, there was no evidence of concealment in that case, like there is in this case, because the concealment allegations here have to do with um, future events, things that happened after the signing of the note, talking about um, the security interests and, and what security interests the company owed to Mr. Hale, which is not my client's responsibility, and again would be contained within the four corners of that agreement. Um, so the, the, comp the court in the ACE case and it concluded that thus because plaintiff effectively agreed when he signed the purchase agreement that defendants made no representation whatsoever with regard to the plane, plaintiff is unable to establish the making of a false representation. And I just point the disclosure cases out to you because when you start looking through the, the actual, what the claims are in this case, you see that um, they relate to either future projections relate to claims which are defeated by the complaint itself. Um, number four talks about financial stability and superior market uh, competition or competitive position, Not, notwithstanding the disclosures go on and on and on about how 
this company is uh, this is a high risk investment. There's a number of uh, disclosures made in the in the in the offering memorandum about risk factors that we have a limited operating history upon which you may evaluate. Um, there's another disclosure on page 439 of the record. If any of our senior management or any of our advisors uh, were unable or unwilling to continue in their positions, our business and operations could be disrupted or fail, meaning if the CEO left, obviously in this case he was terminated, the company indicated to Mr. Hale actual result of operations will vary from the company's projections. Not only we don't know if this is going to be true, but it's likely it will vary. Um, such forward-looking statements are based on assumptions, which assumptions may prove to be incorrect. Accordingly, there is no assurance that such projections, assumptions, and statements will accurately predict future events or actual performance. So coming back to your question, if you make projections but you let, let the buyer know, we don't know if these projections are going to come true. We don't know if there are a lot of uncertainties in the world that could affect our business and affect whether we're, we're profitable. In fact, well, I have we, a question. We, the plaintiff alleges that representations were made to him by Mr. Page that this was a safe investment, that he would have a first-ranking security interest, and that does actually appear within the terms of the convertible promissory note. He's got a first-ranking security interest in, and lien on the collateral not already encumbered, but. Um, his allegations, of course, in, in the complaint are that this representation was made to him that this was a safe investment. So what, how do you respond to that? So um, that's a good question because that is one of the nine allegations. I think it was the ninth in my chart. Um, Mr. Page never represented it was a safe investment. Um, it's never, it, you, you, the word safe is, appears one time in the complaint. It has nothing to do with my client, Mr. Page. Um, it's page 32 of the complaint where um, Mr. Van Kirk, the administrative agent, was talking about the, the merits of whether you want to make an equity investment or do we want to do this convertible promissory note. And Van Kirk, the administrative agent, is saying, I think, you know, from my perspective, a convertible promissory note is safer than making an equity investment. It's got nothing to do with the company as a safe investment. Um, and in fact, in the reply brief on... Uh, so the difference being in the uh, a creditor in a liquidation would have maybe some rights that a shareholder would not have, correct? In a liquidation, the creditor... Has the creditor rights. would have rights that a shareholder might not have. Yes, Your Honor. In fact, the cases talk about the director, not, not a, there's no case that says an officer owes a creditor duties. The cases all talk about director. The director who's in control and who, in this case, would control the liquidation proceedings has certain obligations to the creditor during a winding up. And in this case, Mr. Hale, the manager, is the only person who would have those obligations to Mr. I'm sorry, Mr. Dr. McLeod is the only one that would have those obligations to Mr. Hale, not my client. And when you look at the complaint, the, comp uh, the complaint talks about that the company went into insolvency in May when this Michigan liquidation proceeding was filed. So the winding up, according to the complaint, was in May. The date that the Michigan liquidation proceeding was filed by Dr. McLeod. And my client had been terminated as the CEO. So my client doesn't owe any fiduciary duties. There's no case that says the CEO owes fiduciary duties. And I'm not sure I've finished answering your question, Judge Wood. I think you did. Okay. Um, and, oh, the safe. So the safe investment, what's interesting there is that, you know, initially it's my client made uh, uh, the idea, uh, represented that it was safe. He did not. And, of course, the... The argument in the briefing was, hey, this, this brings in to play this case Lada versus Rainey. And that was one case that was argued in the, in the opening brief. But in, in Lada, that, uh, there was a, um, the, the investors were fixed in income retirees who were, who were uh, buying these, these investments in billboard, these billboard investments. And the agent 
uh, of the company was selling them. He was also making a, 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 some sort of percentage on the sale. And the agent told the investors the company was well settled, was safe. Uh, the investors could not lose any of their uh, principal. And he said it's absolutely no risk. But what the court focused in on there, and I, which I think is really important, is they went back to look at, okay, what, what did they fail to disclose when he was saying this was safe? It wasn't just that it was, the, the broker was saying this was a safe investment. What the broker failed to disclose was that their principal, that these people were investing who were not sophisticated, was going to be used to fund lease payments owed to other investors. So they failed to disclose that. And uh, the court noted nowhere in the extensive investment documentation, unlike our case, uh, presented at trial does it state that subsequent investors' money would be funding the purported lease payments on prior investors. That's my, a typical Ponzi scheme, is it not? Yes, Your Honor. And so my Were point... Were you taking new investors to, to pay dividends to existing investors? Absolutely. And so, again, that's nothing like our case. So these reported cases where fraud survives 12b-6 is nothing like this case. It has to do with a pre-existing fact that's ascertainable, definite, specific, that was relied upon. And here, you don't have that. Here you have the company talking about, here's our projections, here's what we hope is going to happen, but you can't rely on these because there's a lot of uncertainties in the world. Uh, Mr. Page never uh, said it was safe. And in fact, the only time safe is ever word is the word safe is used in the complaint is comparing equity versus uh, convertible promissory note. Mr. Henley, you have about a minute and a half. Thank you, Your Honor. So we would ask that you affirm the trial court um, judge's ruling dismissing my client, the CEO, uh, based on the fact that he the offer that was made to Mr. Hale and which Mr. Hale agreed to indicated that the manager, Dr. McLeod, was the only person authorized, that none of the nine statements are actionable in fraud, even had, even if I was representing Dr. McLeod, I would say none of these are actionable in fraud. Um, the, the breach of fiduciary duty claim, I indicated uh, my client doesn't owe any of those duties, and the breach of contract claim is likewise um, should be affirmed. Um, my client, the only contract in which my client is a party to was the guarantee. My client has fulfilled the obligations under the guarantee. He was terminated under the specific re release language in the guarantee. He's released. Um, it's undisputed if you look at the contract or the documents that were attached to the complaint. He was terminated and that re um, releases him. So we would again just ask the court to affirm the trial court's uh, order dism uh, dismissing all claims against Mr. Page. Thank you. Thank you, sir. <coughs> Where I'd like to start is to point out that the cases cited uh, with regard to fraud, Ragsdale versus Kennedy, the Value Health case recently, the Lada versus uh, the Lada case, all of those cases occurred after there was discovery, after that there was uh, evidentiary proceedings, including the most recent case, uh, North Carolina Supreme Court case, uh, that only some claims of fraud were dismissed at a 12B6, but most of the claims survived and went to a summary judgment after discovery. In this case, we don't know if Green Farm Companies actually was a company that was operating that had the kind of representations that were made to Mr. Mr. Hale. We don't know, for example, if the competitive analysis that was represented Mr. Hale was true. We don't have proof of a single sale of a product. We don't have anything to determine the pre-money valuation of $160 million, which was a then-existing representation was true. We don't know if any of the customers in the pipeline actually existed. We don't know if the farmer contracts, and, and this is one thing that's important, those documents that are considered as part of the complaint, they make these representations. For example, that at the time Mr. Hale signed the documents, that there were farmer contracts yielding $18 million uh, for 2021. There were conservative estimates of $18 million per month in product sales. 
if none of those facts were true at that time, or if there were no actual basis for those to be true, then there is a clear instance of fraud. Now, let, 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 me, let me focus down a little bit. Let's say everything you say is true, and that's the standard we've got to review your complaint. Um, as it relates to Mr. Page, where the documents attached to your complaint provide limitations. Um, we're looking at solely Mr. Page today and not looking at the merits of any other claims you may have against the company or Dr. Uh, McLeod. Let's focus just on that then. Uh, if it, Do you agree that the guarantee was limited to 5%? Only in the event that uh, you dismiss the fraudulent inducement claims and only in the event that you decide that the language in the uh, personal letter written by Mr. Page, which doesn't have the limitation, uh, should not be considered when you look at the, the, uh, the, the release language. Now, I, I think it's important to point out with regard to that same Lease la a release language that that assumes facts that are not pled by Mr. Uh, Hale. Um, it, it assumes, for example, that something that happened in the Michigan uh, liquidation occurred that he was in fact terminated. We don't know whether that's true or not. In fact, it's uh, the document that the uh, that the defendants rely on uh, is a document signed by Dr. McLeod, someone who else who has also been accused of fraud. And, and in this case, would, would, is impeached based upon that. We don't know uh, in the Michigan liquidation proceeding if they ever decided they were terminated or not. What we do know is based on the allegations of this complaint is that they represented to Mr. Hale that they weren't terminated, that they in fact resigned, uh, and, and uh, it, that Mr. Page resigned and Mr. Dr. McLeod was left to sign the, the documents liquidating uh, contrary to the documents that, that, that he signed with Mr. Page. How do you respond to his argument that unfulfilled promises or future promises are not actionable in fraud? There's, I, I, I agree with the legal principle, but that's not what happened in this case. As I identified uh, a few minutes ago, there were specific representations about the amount of customers that they had regarding this competitive position, uh, regarding uh, the, the, the financial revenues. There was financial information, which is another thing that I think is very important. Uh, uh, opposing counsel and um, uh, Mr. Page's counsel indicated that the documents that Mr. Page said that there was no obligation to provide any further information. That contradicts the language of the promissory note that was provided to Mr. Hale. In fact, if you look at uh, if you look at uh, record but, on appeal, uh, does it relate to his client or does it relate to the company? No, it relates to Mr. Page because he made the representation uh, as the CEO of the company, which we all know that companies can't act in an, uh, beyond, uh, they have to act through their officers. And in this case, uh, Mr. Page was the officer signing the convertible promissory note that was fulfilling, the, to, to, to promising to fulfill the obligations of the company. And Schedule 2 to that promissory note required that uh, within no later than 60 days that un unqualified audited fiscal uh, year-end financial statements be provided provided, and that 30 days following the end of each calendar quarter, the same financial information will be provided. That's one of the uh, one of many instances where there's contradictory language. Now, I think it's also important to point out, and this is very important, uh, opposing counsel or Mr. Page's counsel indicated that uh, that the documents were, were provided by ARK investors. That's not what was alleged. The documents were, uh, as or what was alleged was that Mr. Page provided those documents. He then called Mr. Hale on that same day that he provided those documents and, and talked to Mr. Hale extensively about what was in the documents and what the language of the document meant. And, and the interpretation that is being uh, expressed to you at this point now is contrary to those representations that were made to Mr. Hale at that point. That's why we have fraudulent and is so that we don't have circumstances where uh, just a, a, a written document can, can do away with uh, and eliminate the verbal representations that were made. This is an attorney that was representing to a non-attorney. This is what the language in that document means. This is what you can uh, take it to mean, and, and you can take it to mean that we're personally guaranteeing, we're personally putting our, pro our, our personal financial sheets on the line, and that the company is, in fact, an existing operating entity with prospects of continuing. 
Now, I think this is important when you look at the, the Lotta versus Rainey case, the Ragsdale versus Kennedy case, both of which are uh, a long-established uh, jurisprudence for fraud. Uh, in those cases, the, the Ragsdale versus Kennedy case, the, the representation that was made to, 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 that the court found was indeed fraud was this is a gold mine. That's all. We have significant, and that was after a jury trial, after, uh, and, and the court said that's enough to find fraud. We have far more egregious instances of specific misrepresentations that were made to Mr. Hale uh, in this case that needs a discovery in order for us to determine. In this instance, if Green Farms Co. only had $1 million in sales, but it was, but it was represented to be a $160 million valuation company, aren't we at least entitled to determine whether there was, in fact, that valuation? Whether that valuation was, in fact, correct and those representations are correct? We don't know at this point whether that's the case. I'll give you just a few minutes to sum up. Um, in, in sum, there are many representations of material existing fact um, that, uh, that were made to Mr. Hale that induced him to sign this document. Some of those included what appeared to be, uh, based on the representations, uh, making this more than uh, an investment, but rather a secured loan that would certainly be secured by the assets of the company, that in the worst case scenario, the liquidation would occur by friendly people, Mr. Van Kirk, that would ensure that Mr. Hale's interests were paid. That didn't happen. Based on the allegations of this complaint, assuming everything that's true, uh, that, that we asked the court to reverse the trial court's decision to uh, remand back uh, in order that discovery be had, consistent with this discovery that's in the record on appeal, so that we can find out uh, and determine the truth of the, of the allegations and prove the extent of the misrepresentations that were, mis uh, were made to Mr. Hale. We also ask to reverse in part uh, uh, so that we can recover from Mr. Uh, Mr. Page uh, the, the guarantee, whatever the amounts that uh, a fact finder after discovery uh, determines Mr. Page is responsible for, for breaching uh, the, the, guarantee, the personal guarantee uh, signed by Mr. Uh, Page. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, gentlemen.